0: Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring live talks from the Sydney Opera House. I'm Edwina Throsby, the Head of Talks and Ideas. <laughs> today we're going to sort of delve into who were the women of ISIS um, and what motivated them to leave their homes and travel to what we now have come to know as a horrific warscape in Iraq and Syria. Were they um, idealists who were seeking an Islamic utopia or were, were they extremists who were fired up by their hatred of the West or is the reality maybe somewhere a little bit in the middle and more complex. So we have with us Pulitzer Prize finalist Azadeh Moavani, who, of course, has written a very sensitive and immersive um, book um, on the subject, which I will show you here. Um, It's called The Guest House for Young Widows Among the Women of ISIS. And the book tells the story of 13 very different women who joined and endured and in some cases managed to escape um, life in the Islamic State. It really challenges a lot of stereotypes and it asks some very hard questions of the West and of liberal, Western liberal feminism in particular, which I think will be of interest to the crowd today. Um, As well as authoring this book, Azadeh has written a memoir called Lipstick Jihad, and she co-authored with the Nobel Prize um, laureate Shirin Ebadi a book called Iran Awakening. She is of Iranian-American background, and she's lived and reported throughout the Middle East. She's fluent in Farsi and Arabic. And her work on youth culture, women's rights, and Islamic reform has been uh, published all over the world in lots of different publications, including Time, the New York Book Review, the Washington Post, and the Los Angeles Times. Um, And at the moment, she lives in London, where she directs the Gender and Conflict Project at the International Crisis Group. has welcome. Thank you.. <laughs> Um, And just before we get into it, um, just a little bit of housekeeping. We will be um, asking um, people to ask questions in the traditional manner with two microphones. There's one over here and one over here after we've spoken for about 30 or 40 minutes. Um, But if you're a little bit shy to go up to the microphone, you can also do it via app or via website. So I think there is a um, URL back here. So you can go to that URL and enter the event code All About Women, and you can just put in your question via that digital mechanism. And nobody need to hear your voice, but your voice will still be heard. Um, okay, I've, I really want to dive in because there's so much I want to ask about this fascinating book. Um, to me, as a day, the book was really a search for meaning um, to make sense of what seemed from the outside like an absolutely incomprehensible choice that these women made. But you were reporting on the Middle East for a long time before the rise of ISIS. Did the rise of ISIS in particular, its its appeal to women, surprise you?
1: Um, Well, first of all, thank you. I'm delighted to be here with all of you. Thank you all for coming and and happy Women's Day to to all of us. Um, I had covered the Middle East uh, since the late 90s and and had always focused on how instability, poor government, repression uh, impact women. Um, I remember reporting the 2003 invasion of Iraq and noticing that one of the first things that happened when Baghdad became insecure was that families started pulling their girls out of school. Um, so sort of looking backwards to see, you know, what was preceding sort of moments of violence or shifts for women um, in order to try and understand and explain them uh, was habitual for me. Mm. Um when ISIS began uh, marching across Iraq and Syria in 2013-14, um, I think it was largely theorized and covered in the media as, um, as, a, as a problem of religion, this, this kind of pathological uh, ideology that was inexplicable, that was evil, um, sort of stripped of all its political context. And then even more bewildering, how could it, why was it appealing to women? Uh, women from all over the world were streaming uh, into, into Syria to join this movement, um, and and particularly from the Middle East. Um, And to my mind, you know, being an old Middle East hand, what was absent from so much of that explanation, context and coverage was the Arab Spring that had Mm. preceded the rise of ISIS. Um, I think we all remember the hopeful images um, of of the Arab Spring uprisings of 2011 uh, and the way that women were very much at the forefront of them. They were demanding freedom, opportunity, dignity, uh, an end to repressive government. Uh, And they were uh, a generation, especially of very young women, girls, who were demanding uh, and and challenging these repressive orders. And so I think it was... um, you know, and we saw, kind of country to country, all of that hopeful energy crushed. You know, there was mm. either greater repression or civil war, uh, and and it ended up not leading to the sort of aspirations that women were seeking. Mm. And I think it was in that moment that ISIS turned and began to direct its messaging, its invitation to many women from these societies who had sought, you know, peaceful pathways to aspirations we would consider legitimate and had seen that crushed and I think Isis pivoted and said you know well come to us it didn't work out so well for you in Tunisia in Libya uh, in Bahrain uh, and, and sought to sort of draw all of this vibrant feminine um, you know energy that had been vital uh, to its own project and of course we we know that that and we'll talk about it. I'm sure how that ended up being hugely exploitative mm. that it promised uh, it promised answers to frustration and desires in a way that it had no intention of delivering. Uh, But I think we can only sort of make its appeal intelligible by looking backwards and seeing uh, what directly preceded it in the Arab Spring.
0: One of the um, ideas that you challenge in your book is that there is a single unifying reason why women would have flocked to ISIS to join the caliphate. Um, But it struck me when I was reading about your subjects that they all felt excluded in some way and a lot of them were very lonely women um, and it seemed that their problems started at home within the family. Would you say that's fair?
1: I think certainly uh, for women who, who ended up traveling to Syria or joining the Islamic State from the West, that was certainly um, very much uh, a strong part of their background. Uh, I write about a young, uh, well, uh, a woman called Lina, a Lebanese immigrant to Germany who was essentially in, in a very abusive marriage, mm. uh, had mental health problems, was living in, in a sort of battered women's shelter in Frankfurt, uh, very much isolated and cut off from the world, very religious, was turning to religion for some sort of solace to get through this uh, abusive and trying time uh, and was very vulnerable. Um, I think that theme, again, you know, about the applies to the girls I wrote about in London as well, many of them, you know, absent father's homes in which there was either social uh, marginalization or, or absent um, kind of family figures that would be looking over them. So I think certainly, um, you know, through the individual stories that, that comes out, um, I think when we turn to uh, the women from the Arab world or states like Tunisia, uh, Syria, Iraq, um, that kind of personal, um, that kind of personal experience is a little bit less revelatory mm-hmm. about why uh, so many women kind of were coerced or, or decided to participate in this, mm-hmm. because we're then dealing or looking at countries that or fracturing, or experiencing violence, or or repression, or instability Mm -hmm. on a sort of massive scale. Um, So then I think we're sort of looking uh, at women. Um, I write about uh, a group of three Syrian women from Raqqa who were living uh, in in what became the Islamic State's capital uh, when when it took over, uh, and they, were from very stable homes. They were attending university. One of them was uh, studying English literature. The other one was studying marketing. They read Dan Brown novels. They were completely relatable young women um, kind of living more independent lives than their mothers and grandmothers before them. Mm. Uh, And their society kind of split open. Syria split open in this civil war and ISIS took over the city where they were living. And so for them, um, it was more a, a kind of a coercive... Uh, mafia sort of force that had taken over where they were living and their choices I think were very much driven by survival uh, and safety in the midst of a country that was being um, riven apart. I was very interested
0: to read in your book um, about the women of Tunisia in particular who lived under a very authoritarian regime and they felt, I mean, I think in the West we think of something, a place like Tunisia as being very Islamic, but they felt that they were not able or they were not able to um, practise their religion with the freedom that they wanted to and they were persecuted for practising their religion too hard, if you like. Um, Can you tell us about that um, dynamic and why it served to
1: radicalise them towards ISIS? some um, So the book uh, opens with the story of a young Tunisian woman called Noor, um, and she was uh, a teenager in the Tunisia before the 2011 uprising uh, in which uh, this secular dictatorship uh, or, or authoritarian regime was overthrown. Um, so. In in the Tunisia of the pre-Arab spring, uh, religion was very much used by the state in a kind of coercive way to control its citizens. Uh, So even though Tunisia was quite a religious and traditional society um, by and large, headscarves, wearing a headscarf was banned in, in universities, in high schools, in, in government ministries. so you couldn't get a government job uh, if you covered your hair. Uh, and and Noor, who, um, you know, the book opens with this moment, she's 13, and she decides that she, you know, having become a teenager and an adolescent wants to cover her hair, uh, she shows up at high school one day with, with a scarf on, and she wants to cover her face too, because she's been watching um, sheikhs on YouTube who, um, who say that this is... The 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 right way to practice your religion. So she shows up sort of covering and her teachers kind of look at her in bewilderment and say, you can't come into our class looking like this. Uh, And she kind of perseveres and then she goes to to the next class and there she has a quite violent confrontation with a teacher who slaps her, who says, you have to take this off, get out of my classroom. Mm. Uh, So Noor goes home uh, and and is suspended and and ends up dropping out of high school. Mm. Um, and, And I think it's quite... Sort of her story is very illustrative of the way in which women uh, were controlled by this secular dictatorship, and in a way that their their piety or their wish to sort of you know practice their religion freely um, was was part of the state's very coercive uh, control of its citizenry. Uh, and then in 2011, of course, when uh, the Arab Spring um, well, it wasn't even called the Arab Spring then; it was just the revolution uh, in Tunisia erupted. Uh, Nora came out of the house. It was as though she actually could be included in Tunisian public life. She joined this activist movement that was very conservative Mm -hmm. uh, and and quite kind of orthodox but that demanded inclusion for women like her and education Um, and so this kind of story uh, I, I think we don't very often think about women living under these repressive regimes in the Middle East uh, who are repressive in a secular manner. I think we're very often focused on places where women uh, are told to cover up, Mm. but we haven't paid a lot of attention to the places where they're not allowed to cover if they want to, which Mm. is the sort of other side of of repression in in the end.
0: Mm. I was one of the most interesting parts of your book and it was certainly quite revelatory for someone like me. I, I want to talk now about the Bethnal Green schoolgirls because I think they were part of the reason that you wanted to write this book. And they were an object of absolute fascination to the British public and throughout the West. Um, you write a lot about those schoolgirls in your book. Um, they were an absolute media sensation. They were heavily co- covered, um, particularly by the tabloids in Britain. Why were we so fascinated by those little girls as they, you know, they left Britain to go to, this, um, to go to Syria via Turkey?
1: Um, there, there was certainly something deeply resonant about the, the kind of defection of those girls. I think you're absolutely right. Um, and, and those images, if you all remember, of them walking through the scanners at the airport, looking, um, looking like stylish young women off for a city break somewhere in Europe, but really they were going to join the Islamic State. Um, I think there was a, a real sort of moment uh, that... that instilled a lot of fear, because if girls like that, popular, bright, London-born teenagers uh, could be groomed or persuaded into thinking that the Islamic State offered something to them, um, I think sort of there was a moment where it was clear that it could happen to, to many women, many young women, if it could happen to them. Um, and... I was very drawn to the whole project in part because of how the media in Britain started to cover them. Mm. Um, They were very young, they were 15 when they were groomed or recruited and I think it's really important to use that language of grooming because Mm. essentially they were being trafficked or drawn into uh, a group that wanted to marry them off as as child brides to soldiers. Uh, But the press in in Britain wrote about them as though um, they were already evil. They were written about Mm. as whores for the caliphate and concubines. Know, going to serve as fighters, and and there was coverage that. You know that really reprimanded state authorities for even trying to find them and get them back. And I remember one column, uh, one columnist saying, you know, it's enough. Uh, stop paying attention to to these girls. It's time to turn our attention back to our girls. And they were suddenly not our girls yeah. anymore. They weren't British anymore. Um, and and I felt that this um, unwillingness to to countenance the possibility that they could be victims because they were girls. They were you know not of age to make a sound decision. Um, largely, I. I think because they they were not they were not white, mm. um, and and I wanted to find them and write other headlines about them, and that was sort of part of the quest. Mm. And you write
0: uh, in the book about the the, the failure of systems really um, that let those girls down and let their families down. Um, the police failed to intervene even though there were signs that they should, um, or they intervened but very ineptly. Um, the school failed to intervene well or properly. Can you tell us a little bit about that um, the, the, yeah the failure of systems?
1: It was bewildering to to people in in the UK that that this has happened um, because of course there's a very um, kind of overbearing uh, state policies that that um, are meant to spot signs of radicalization. Mm. And, and they're so overbearing that even I, as a sort of university lecturer, if, if a young woman in one of my classes shows up starting to cover her hair, I'm sort of obliged to go and speak to her and see if she's been radicalized and maybe she, you know her thoughts are turning to violence. So you know, given all of this, how could it have been missed that these girls... Um, were changing that they were dressing more conservatively, that they were meeting with strangers. Mm. Um, it, was, it was an incredible lapse. I mean, one of them, you know, in the classroom had started arguing uh, in the secondary school um, in, in favour of ISIS, and, and no, one, uh, no one alerted the parents to this. Uh, their best friend, there was a girl who went first, um, so it's really four Bethnal Green girls, but we think of the three. She was a strong personality. She went first, uh, and the police knew, and the school knew, and everyone knew, but, No one told the parents of these three best friends. They just said, uh, yeah, your your daughter's friend has disappeared, sort of leaving out the crucial to join ISIS bit of it. So the parents were very much demonized in the press for not having spotted, you know, negligent what was wrong with them. How could they not have known? Um, And and I think the parents were a really poignant part of the story because I think they were largely um, not really equipped in a way to be parenting girls in the 21st century London in such a fractious moment when this when this group was sort of spinning out these messages across Tumblr and Twitter and Facebook. Uh, and these girls were disappearing into their phones and their behavior was changing, but, you know, teenagers disappear into their phones and we don't know what they're doing. Um... But it was blamed on the parents who I think, you know, looked at the girls, starting to dress more conservatively, spending more time at the mosque. And these were, you know, immigrant parents of of Muslim countries, uh, really worried that they would lose their girls um, to this kind of liberal society. And Mm. so they were actually, like, the signs that they should have been looking for to them were signs of safety and relief. Um, You know, one of the fathers said to me, uh, "Yeah, she had stopped saying, uh, she said to me, you know, Baba, I don't want to be a fashion designer anymore. And I just thought I was so glad. And, you know, really that should have been the moment when he should have thought, you know, what was she doing? Um, But to him it was, you know, he misread the signal. Mm, mm.
0: Those girls did leave for Syria after, you know, we we really started to to know what was going on there. There were images and reports of beheadings, crucifixions, um, mass rapes. Did those girls not see those reports? Did they see them and not believe them or did they see them and think that they were justified?
1: That's such a hard and important question. Um, Well, so these particular girls, um, I never had the chance uh, to to ask them that question, Um, but I asked other women that question. Um, and, and got very often a similar range of answers. Um, uh, one was that, um, th- that they didn't believe it because many of them were, were living in, in countries like in Tunisia where the media was controlled by the state, was used to justify state corruption and brutality and, and all sorts of abuses in the names of state. Uh, and so they either didn't follow, or were deeply mistrustful of it um, and, and didn't believe that that these things were happening, that it was something that was being deployed to, um, to counter what they were starting to think was you know a utopian real project. Uh, so distrust in media, uh, even even um, you know other girls that I spoke to in London, um, who who didn't end up going but were blocked. So I was able to ask them this. You know they they didn't really. Read or watch—I mean, teenagers barely, you know, read um, or, or follow uh, the news um, as, as we know it. But with with these girls, um, I think that there was a deep mistrust of it because, mm. you know, part of it—if you looked at the, the things that the Bethnal Green girls were saying to each other uh, on Twitter, on social media, there was a lot of talk about. Um, injustices that the media didn't cover, Guant, uh, you know, Guantanamo or the Rohingya or all mm-hmm. sorts of ways in which Muslims were suffering Palestine in ways that the media um, obfusc- obfuscated or ignored. So I think that was certainly part of it. But I think we also have to remember that there were different phases. And so women who went earlier in... in, in the kind of early period of the Syrian civil war, and really thought that it was uh, a just fight against a, a very brutal authoritarian dictator in Syria, um, and then you know young women who were hearing from their husbands or their fathers or their or their or fighters uh, in Syria in Iraq, uh, yes, we we. We engage in this terrible brutality, but it's because the other side is so extreme as mm-hmm. well that you know the Assad regime is responsible for industrial-scale abuses, and this is what we must do. Everyone's hands are bloody. Um, mm-hmm. So a kind of uh, a real sort of, I guess, a mix of, of um, you know rejection of the media because of its, its history of, of reporting on on the state or on citizens, and then this kind of narrative of. Uh, the, you know, the opponent is, is equally evil, and this is, this is justified.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to ask you on that, on that note um, about female anger and female agency. Um, one of my sort of the most poignant passages of the book to me, in, to me was when you talk about Sharmina, who was one of the Bethnal Green girls, and you say there were many things that a young girl could do with rage, but it took an attentive, intact family, living, room with book, uh, living rooms with books, a sensitive school, and layers of protection that often didn't exist around these working-class girls from East London to introduce those ideas. And you say that there was no space in British society um, for those girls to discuss their anger. Can you tell me what role do you think female anger had in their radicalisation and why did they channel it to ISIS, which has the violent control of women really at the heart of its
1: project? I think for very young women we were talking, you know, we're talking 13, 14, 15-year-olds. Um, you know, they're just at that moment uh, where their political consciousness is forming. Very often, their thinking is quite binary and and black and white. Um, many of them, you know, grew up in, in families where a sort of a deep mistrust of the West, Western foreign policy, was just part of uh, a cultural and social worldview, and that's something that I related to. Um, so I think in many ways, they were sort of, very ripely positioned to have this mistrust, these grievances, this political anger exploited uh, by a group that came in. You know, I mean, some of the things that ISIS would, would say in its messaging, especially to young women in Britain, was, um, you know, uh, society will never respect you, you'll never really count as British because you cover your hair and you deal with all this racism and you know they won't even accept you as feminists because of your religion. Um, so sort of plying all of these messages um, and sort of increasing their sense of alienation, kind of uh, building it or cultivating it. Um, so I think that there was kind of nascent teenage political anger about things uh, that, that they had inherited or injustices that they saw, um, and then kind of mixed in with um, very real kind of identity uh, dilemmas. You know, do I count as British if I look like Mm. this? Um, Will I be accepted uh, as as a progressive feminist or, you know, uh, one of the things, for example, that was like an ISIS meme that was directed to, to British young women was um, kind of riffing off of the uh, cover girl, the cosmetic kind of ad, covered girl. You know, come here wow. and you won't have to deal with any of these choices. Here you can have it all. And mm. of course, you know, it, it turned out to be utterly uh, a lie. Mm. Um, but it was, I think, sort of playing on these frustrations, desires, challenges that, you know, in and of themselves were, were quite understandable. This might be a
0: stupid question, but, you know, these women obviously went to the caliphate in search of a better life. Was there a brief moment in which they had a better life or they were able to, you know, have greater freedom of choice in terms of, you know, practising their religion? Was 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 there any improvement in their lifestyle for, even for a brief moment?
1: The women that, that I wrote about, um, I would say that that Not really. <laughs> that, that pretty much shortly upon arrival, um, they they realized that that there would be you know a, a great deal of coercion, uh, and that many of the things that you know ISIS was even teaching them. I mean, when women arrived and, and went to these guest houses, um, from which the book takes its title, uh, they had to go on courses of religious instruction um, and some sort of light arms training. And the religious instruction, um, sort of, it, it was interesting to me uh, ended up teaching some of these young women. Sort of basic Islamic principles, that they immediately then turn to say, "Okay, well, if, if this is the case that you know, if this is a jurisprudence around you know this kind of a crime, then every day you're flouting it." Um, so very quickly, I think many of them realized that it was actually not this utopian state-building kind of project in which you know people could find Muslims could find a homeland and build a better state than the repressive ones that were on offer, but that what it was a you know what we know it to be, you know, a rapacious. Syrian, Iraqi insurgency, uh, with with was deeply kind of violent and and basically territorially rapacious intentions. Um, but uh, I think the, the the push to then sort of marry again and again also for women um, was was one of the cruelest uh, inflictions. I mean, I think uh, the the fact that the, the minute a woman's fighter husband died, she then had to remarry. Uh, sometimes, you know, without even having a grieving grieving period. Um, I think overall, um, you know, it was uh, an intense and an immediate kind of awareness mm-hmm. that it was not going to be anything that was promised. And, and sort of, sadly, one of the Bethnal Green girls, I think within weeks of arriving, mm-hmm. you know, called home, said, I don't want to be here. It was a terrible mistake. Can mm-hmm. you get me out? And, and her family was trying to find ways to get her out. Um, and she was killed in an airstrike before mm-hmm. they could even attempt mm-hmm. it.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the other really interesting things um, about reading this book was the difference in experience that the women had based on their background. The caliphate was an international project. Women from all over the world were there and they had very different experiences um, of the regime depending on which country they came from and there was a bit of a hierarchy that formed and that bred a lot of resentment, particularly among Syrian women who saw, you know, foreign women come into their country and almost overtake them in the queue, sometimes literally. Can you tell us about that?
1: That was a really fascinating dynamic. And the first woman who told me about that was a young woman called um, Asma. I call her uh, in the book. She was one of the Syrian women uh, in, who was living in Raqqa that, that I mentioned earlier. Um, she was the one who was um, studying marketing and wanted to... She was so cosmopolitan, she could speak some English. She wanted to work in tourism. Um, and her family stayed uh, when, when ISIS took over the city. and started to collaborate, and she was pushed and pushed to also, you know, eventually start working with ISIS. And so she became... Her role was to go to the border and meet these foreign women who arrived from other countries and bring them in, a sort of meet-and-greet role. And because she had this English, she was suited for that. I mean, she was the one who first told me, because she had brought in the Bethnal Green Girls. She said, you know, I didn't understand why they were coming here. You know, they were born in London. Why weren't they just staying home and, you know, dating handsome English footballers? Like, why were they coming to our nightmare? Because to her, her country had just descended into bloody war, and her choices were were largely sort of survival-based, mm. um, and, and she couldn't fathom why they had come, and then was also very resentful of the privileges that they had. You know, they could go to the front of the queue for bread or uh, they had a little bit more freedom of movement. And, of course, they used that freedom of movement to take pictures of themselves and use it for propaganda and bring more women in. But there was real resentment. You know, they, they took the better houses. But then you would also hear that from the other side. So mm-hmm. all of these kind of real-worldly resentments and grievances um, uh, that, that you would expect were, were very much, you know, at play in this kind of... Uh, in this sort of terribly violent place that, that we sort of don't think of as being also a place where kind of normal human things mm. like this could emerge. Mm.
0: Normal rivalries. Um, I want to ask
1: you about liberal feminism. There's several points
0: in your book, that you're, um, in your book where you're critical of it. And you write um, very movingly of the, the Bethnal Green girls and say that you were struck by how many, how the most noxious things that were said about those girls were said by other women, uh, women who were otherwise identify as liberal feminists. What do you think the dynamic at play is there? And do you think
1: Western liberal feminism has failed these women? I think it certainly failed those girls. Mm. um, Because it didn't intersect enough with their lives to be able to really view them as girl victims. Um, It reminded me, uh, in the UK, we had uh, a string of stories um, in in recent years about girls in northern cities in in Britain who were... uh, sort of groomed into these sexual grooming networks Mm. and sort of kept by men for years, abused and exploited. And there was a sort of national outcry at how this could have gone on, how Mm. could no one have noticed, the police, the social workers. Um, And many of the dynamics were simply the same. You know, very vulnerable, young teenage Mm. girls being persuaded, don't tell your parents about what I'm going to do to you. You know, the kind of classic behaviour of of an exploiter, a sexual exploiter uh, of a young woman. Um, And the parallels to this, you know... I mean, to my mind, were immediate and mm. obvious. But, you know, these girls were just simply victims. And these girls were accomplices to their mm. own exploitation. And mm. the, only, uh, the only difference was their background, their religious and mm. racial background. Um, so I think that that led to um, a sort of any, any permission or acknowledgement that they too could be victims. Um, And and I think that more widely, you know, there there is a real kind of tension within liberal white Western feminism around what to do with religion and and Islam and women who are religious Mm. Um, you know can they precisely the the kind of uh, tensions that ISIS was exploiting you know uh, is there such a thing as Islamic feminism Um, can you seek gender justice within a context or a movement that is is, is deeply religious and orthodox in its Mm. own way Um, so I think we haven't really um, I I think those are challenging conversations and and we were talking about Tunisia earlier Um, you know why were young women, radical, revolutionary young women, um, seeking change or empowerment through what, what we would see from a Western vantage as uh, a sort of orthodox or exclusionary even mm. movement? Um, mm. You know, how do we make sense of young women like Noor who were part of a movement that petitioned and would have protests in front of Tunisian universities to be able to sit for classes wearing a face veil. Mm. Um, it's sort of seeking inclusion, but from a space of, of such mm. um, otherness. Uh, and, and it's very, I think, very complex to sort of figure out how to engage and think about women who are seeking maybe not even gender equality but gender justice, uh, and do they count as feminists mm. you know are they are they to be supported are they to be criticized? Mm. Um, I think we, we don't have um, enough of these thorny conversations mm. on that, on that point you, you, you talk about how in Britain um,
0: and particularly with the coverage of the best Green girls that 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 there was a tension between making sense of it all and trying to understand it um, and that being too dangerously close to sympathising with these girls and we couldn't have that. Um, Did you develop or have any sympathy for your subjects as you reported on them over many, many years?
1: Um, Some of them a great deal. Mm. Um, Some of them a great deal and and it was very hard to, at at, at many moments, um, kind of be careful to not uh, over-empathize. I mean, I think part of the challenge of this book was that these women were the most dehumanised um, kind of political subjects of, of certainly the last decade, um, very little empathy at all for what could have led them to, to, to take these decisions. Um, and so the sort of impulse to perhaps overcorrect was something that I was, had to be really vigilant for. Um, but there were some who who were who were very clearly um, you know desolate, tragic stories. Um, the young woman Lena, for example, um, that I mentioned from from the the abused home, some much less so, I have to say you know some uh, and, and perhaps, you know, this is something that happens in war, but, you know, I remember there was a Syrian woman that I met in one of these camps who had, I mean, detention camps. She had just escaped Raqqa. Um, and she was so blithe, you know? Mm. I mean, she was sort of, she knew the right things to say, mm. um, but in a moment she would sort of turn and say, oh, this camp is so, um, they don't serve vegetables here and there's no fish and, um, you know, like had no sense, I think, really of the the sort of most, horrific aspects of a group that she um, had been a part of what they had done. Um, So I think some, you know, in in the end, and, you know, perhaps they had, you know, uh, emerged from a society that was so fractured that the other side was dehumanized by both sides, Mm. Um, which, again, is understandable Mm. to me, but is much harder to then sympathize with an individual who, you know, so easily dehumanizes others.
0: That that brings to mind to me the Australian um, women and children who are still over there in refugee camps um, in in Syria. And I'm sure some of the audience members will have followed their story. Um, A lot of those women, particularly when they've appeared in the media, um, there's this real feeling amongst, I think, the public of, like, are you sorry enough? Were you a victim or were you an accomplice? And you you need to tell us, because otherwise we're not going to help you. Um, What do you think... Nonetheless, it is a very thorny issue for the Australian government. Um, Do they help these women and children get them out get out or do they leave them there to essentially rot and i think Probably the public would be behind them if they did so, unfortunately. Um, what, what do you think is the most prudent course of action for the government with these uh, Australian women and children? I know you didn't actually meet any of them in the camps, but you will have know, know their stories, I think.
1: Um, so, yeah, I've met some of the families um, and I've visited the camp uh, or the detention centre where, where they're being held. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time working on this issue because, of course, ISIS is over, but, you know, country to country, um, societies and governments are dealing with exactly mm. this question. Mm. You know what do we do uh, with our women and children nationals who 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 are there who are, were were affiliated in some way? Um, I think it's just really crucial to not view them all as a monolith um, because there are so many different uh, experiences and backgrounds and ways to which women ended up there. You know, some were genuinely coerced or in positions where they didn't have a lot of choice, um, some less so, um, and I think a policy that recognizes that um, sort of varying level of experience and also, you know, an awareness of the different roles women played in ISIS. Some women were, were very much involved in perpetrating violence, and some women were very much um, as, as we were speaking earlier, you know, immediately repented or regretted, tried to escape and had their children taken away, tried to escape and were abused. Um, so the sort of picture of victimhood, um, the sort of role of perpetrator and victim can be mixed in, in one woman's experience or, or it can be very much tilted to, to one sort of side or the other. Mm. And then, of course there are many innocent children mm. who are did not choose to be taken there and did not choose to be mm. born into into such a situation and are living in a place that is like an ISIS detention centre because there are women in there who are still fervid ISIS supporters who, you know, stab camp guards and there's no access to any kind of healthcare mm. or, or, or any kind of medicine. I mean, the water is polluted. I mean, it is a nightmarish place. Mm. Um, and th- so in the end, I mean, I think states do have, of course, a duty to keep their citizens at home safe. I think it's important to acknowledge that. Um, but also uh, are capable of differentiating within or amongst their citizens who are there. They can bring back those who are deemed not risky at all mm. or, or very little risk mm. and who are the most vulnerable and, of course, the children. So I mm. think there is a quite kind of um, nuanced set of responses that are possible for governments um, mm. that would be in line with, um, <laughs> with, with even security concerns because I think, you know, there are a lot of arguments uh, across Europe, and I heard this that you know bringing women back um, and keeping an eye on them, prosecuting them, is in a way much safer than sort of allowing you know 13,000 women and children to to remain um, in this sort of no man's land mm. part of Syria where they can escape. They can cross back into their home countries undetected. Um, So for a whole sort of myriad of reasons, there are smarter and more targeted ways uh, of dealing with repatriation Mm. that that can be humane and can start with those that are just kind of a no-brainer. I mean, Mm. someone who your intelligence agencies know is not going to be a threat Mm. and who is deeply suffering and who has three children, Mm. you know, simply should be brought home.
0: Mm. Um, We're almost going to head to the... um Audience questions. So anyone in the audience who does want to ask a question, I'll ask you to sort of move towards one of the microphones either here or over here. And while you do that, I'm going to ask a very, very self-interested and selfish question, which is about your journalistic methods. Um, this is the story of 13 women, and I know the women that you include in the book are only a small portion of all the women that you talk to over many, many years of covering this area... How did you find them? How did you keep track of them? How did you manage to agree with them what was on and off the record and how they would be portrayed in the book while, you know, protecting their identities to a certain extent but also telling their real story? Tell me a little bit about your journalistic methods.
1: Um, It was was the most challenging... of research and reporting i've ever done in my life um of course these are women who for security reasons don't want to be seen or heard or detected um who for many in many instances viewed a a western reporter or a journalist as, as not someone that they wanted to trust or felt even inclined to engage with um so it was very hard um You know, know, finding these women was was very hard in and of itself, but then, you know, persuading them that they should tell me their story and that there was a reason, um, you know, to potentially even jeopardise their safety um, by doing that. Um, I went through sort of many different intermediaries um, and, and I think very often I had to start conversations with the past, you know, uh, and establish a kind of basis of of kind of shared knowledge of, of their history um, and not sort of seem to be kind of parachuting in to ask sensational mm-hmm. questions about, you know, do you agree with sexual slavery? And um, so I think for me, you know, once I had managed to be or or find a woman who I could sit in a room with, um, it was, you know, a process of, you know, you could even think of it um, as as persuasion, seduction, sort of. Establishing that I know the history that you've come through, I might know the history of your neighborhood or your country, mm-hmm. and I'm very interested in what happened uh, to your father uh, when you know Hafez al-Assad crushed your town, you know, in the 80s. So starting with the past, I think worked very mm-hmm. well for me. I think mm-hmm. um, it was it was a way to say that you know I have a kind of shared past with you as well, and you know want to understand everything that brought you to this moment. Um, uh, a lot of times uh, it, it was very hard though because these women would disappear. They were quite traumatized sometimes and I didn't want to push um, and, and it didn't seem right. There were situations where um, it didn't really feel like uh, a woman was choosing to talk to me um, even though it wasn't obvious that she had been forced to, um, so then I ended up not using it. Or young women who, you know, said, no, I want you to use my name, please use my name, I want my story to, um, you know, I don't want this to happen to anyone else and I simply thought, you know, you're too young to make yes, this decision yes. for yourself, I'm going to obscure you um, and, and sort of try to be as responsible as possible with mm. what I had, um, what had been shared with me.
0: Mm. We might go now to audience questions, I think. Or um, if we don't have any audience questions, I think um, there will be some on the iPad, which of course I've left over on the lectern, so let me just scoot over. (laughs) We do have an audience question, marvellous. Go ahead. Hi, thank you for a very stimulating talk. Um, My question was, um, as an Australian Syrian woman, I would often feel moments of... um, Sorry. <laughs> Low-level guilt and shame for my Western privileges and um, my safety, my national safety. So I was just wondering, um, was this a similar notion, a, a guilt... Um, was this a similar notion of guilt a catalyst for the women of the Western cultures to travel to these um, countries and join ISIS as a... Uh, no matter what side it was that they were fighting for, that, that
1: sense of guilt and, and um, for their national safety? good question. Um, that's a wonderful question. Um, I, think, I think that was very much for, for many women, um, either at the forefront or, or very mixed in with their motivations, especially when we're talking about women who went in 2013, 2014, when the Syrian civil war seemed very innocent, and it seemed like a very clear and just battle against you know, a vicious tyrant. Um, mm-hmm. That feeling that uh, we cannot sit... Um, passive while this terrible brutality is inflicted upon innocent people. Um, And and I think for for many Muslim women uh, and men, this idea that they're attached to their fellow Muslims in other places and that they have a duty to step in where states won't Mm. um, to, to protect them. So I think, uh, I think especially in, in the earlier phases that was... Um, I think that was a very kind of powerful motivation um, and one that even some states supported. I mean, in Tunisia in 2013, 2014, there was real, I think, kind of sympathy for that by leaders. Um, and it was as the war and as ISIS became more brutal and more clearly genocidal that that sort of sense of it evaporated.
0: Mm. There's even a word for that, isn't there, in, in um, Islam?
1: The, that sense of brotherhood or... Um... Yes, the concept of Ummah, that we're all connected um, and have a stake and duty to each other's safety. Um,
0: Yeah. 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 Um, We have a gentleman down the front. Uh, Good morning. ISIS, Al-Qaeda, other extremist organisations see their struggle as being very intergenerational. Um, I'm I'm very curious about your thoughts. If we look at the, the women and children that are still in camps that have failed to be repatriated from a very kind of male-dominated national security framework, is there a huge missed opportunity in that? Um, are we building the card raise? Are we sowing the seeds of, of an intergenerational uh, kind of continuation of this struggle by not bringing those women and children back, by not reabsorbing them?
1: That, that's, a, that's a good question, too, and it's something that um, always comes up uh, in, in these discussions about what should we do, because are we not just then abandoning you a know, generation um, and making them, um, leaving them defenseless and marginalized in a way that they can then participate as veterans in, in the next wars? Um, I mean, I certainly think that that, that is a possibility. Um, of course, it's distant and sort of, I think, projecting into the future something that may, may or may not come to pass. Um, uh, I don't think it's the most sort of powerful reason to make to, to deal in a humane and legal way with, with these women and children who were who there. Um, I mean, I certainly think that there's, there's a point to be made, though, and, and um, you know, perhaps I'll take this opportunity to make it, I mean, I think it was striking the way that ISIS shifted uh, from the sort of jihadist movements of the past to to deliberately offer women membership. Um, I think that's certainly something that Al-Qaeda never did. It saw women as um, mothers, incubators of the ideology, raising the next generation of fighters, whereas ISIS sort of seeing the energy, I think, of women in the Arab Spring, and that this was a very different um, kind of generation, offered them full-scale membership. And and I think that that was very compelling to women. Uh, So in a way, sort of projecting into the future, could there be women veterans of the jihadist movement who could play the role that the male veterans played, men who fought in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, and then went back to their home countries and sort of Cultivated the seed of that for the next generation. Um, I certainly think that that's possible. I mean, we've sort of seen uh, that happen uh, in contemporary history with, with jihadism. Um, on the other hand, I do really believe uh, at the same time that. that Ideology and its nihilism and its willingness to use violence indiscriminately against civilians and against other Muslims is a very fringe, extreme ideology uh, that, that is able to exploit disorder and to exploit states that are fracturing and, and that are. You know, in which sort of citizens um, are, are looking for safety. So disorder, chaos, is what sort of generates support for that, um, because in and of its own, I think it is seen as as destructive um, and and not something that the majority in a society would be drawn to. Um, so, so, in a roundabout way, uh, yes, um, and and particularly for women, um, but bearing in mind that you know, it's it's the collapse of a society, um, you know, at, at its greatest level that I think does provide the entryway to movements that are in and of themselves in other moments deeply fringe.
0: Um, we have a young woman here.
1: Uh, just going back to the green girls and radicalization of uh, Western women or women in Western countries, uh, you talked about women's rage and you talked about Western liberalism failing us. Um, what are some practical things that we can do as individuals and as a society to try and prevent this happening again in the future? Mm, great question. Um, yeah, that is a great question. Um, and I'm glad that you asked it because... Um, I think when we talk about radicalization, we end up talking about things like racism and alienation and grievances. Um, but but I do think that it's important not to then turn our energies to confronting those things in order to prevent radicalization and violence. Because in the end, we have to remember that if there are two million Muslims in the UK, only you know less than a thousand mm. uh, decided to take. Uh, all of those feelings of resentment and marginalization and structural racism and choose, you know, this pathway of violence out mm. of them. So it's really important, I think, not to uh, conflate or bring a security counter-terrorism uh, perspective or even money or political backing to initiatives to deal with these things mm. because it inevitably um, securitizes them uh, in a way that uh, makes them ineffective. Um, in Britain, we had, for example, uh, initiatives aimed at offering English classes to immigrant women, and it was and it was rolled out uh, by then Prime Minister David Cameron, saying, "Well, if they speak better English, then they can prevent their sons from going to join ISIS," uh, which, as you can imagine, um, was was quite off-putting and and not the way to roll out a program that you know is is very well-intentioned. Otherwise, um, I mean, one thing I would say is simply greater space for. Political discussions that kind of range into territory that, that the police or counterterrorism might consider sympathy for militancy or terrorism. Um, there's a story uh, in the book uh, or an account in the book of of a, of a play in London that was commissioned by the National Youth Theatre about why British Muslims are were being drawn to to ISIS, um, and it was it was a wonderful edgy, difficult, challenging play. Um, And it kind of swirled into it, you know, it it sort of argued against itself, and it aired a lot of these grievances. And in the end, I think refuted the logic that violence is the answer, but it was just seen as too much. And so the night that it was meant, or like two nights before it was meant to be performed, it was pulled by the police. And, you know, can you imagine a play commissioned in London in the 21st century being censored? I mean, when has that happened in recent memory? Um, So I think permitting space for young people to feel like they can air all of these attitudes and then to have space for them to be challenged uh, is really important. Mm.
0: Yeah, that was a most extraordinary example of censorship. I didn't know about that before I read your book. Um, there's a question on here that I want to ask you because um, it's about feminism. Uh, somebody anonymous asked, did, you, did your own views and the way that you practice feminism change after speaking to these women?
1: Um, that's a great question. Please. Uh, did my own my views are um, no, not really. If anything, um, if anything, it just sort of cemented my <laughs> my my existing views. Um, you know, sometimes. Uh, uh, so I will I will start I will start backwards. You know, I come from a country Iran where. Um, you know, I was part of a, of a, of a class and, and a background in Iranian society that before the Iranian revolution um, was seemingly very empowered. You know, women who looked like me or my mother who didn't cover their hair, who were very westernized, um, could have government jobs, could go to university, and, and were very much... Um, included in public life, but we were very much a minority. Mm. And when the Islamic Revolution happened, um, it brought into power a government that was both anti-Western, but much more inclusive of and encouraging of religion in public life. Mm. And that brought hundreds of thousands of women into education and into the workforce in ways that, you know, the secular government that, that empowered me had not managed to do. Mm. Um, and so even though the Islamic revolution of Iran from the outside looks like a deeply unfeminist mm. um, political transition, it ended up creating the groundswell for a women's movement that was more mass that was more broad-based and that was more vibrant and that ended up changing things on a le- national level for women in a far more significant way than the kind of secular, elite feminism of the government before it. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I, my personal perspective um, is that when feminism in, in countries of the region, of course, or the Middle East, which is, you know, what I'm concerned with, um, in in this discussion, uh, when it becomes intertwined with power structures or government relationships with the West, and so when people kind of view uh, women's rights or the potential for women's inclusion kind of through the lens of a government that is deeply repressive and corrupt and not inclusive and see that as backed by the West, I think it sort of creates all sorts of um, pressures and associations that are reactionary. Mm. Um, So (laughs) it's a long way of sort of saying that um, that I think feminism uh, has to be disassociated with the Western power structures of a government that is backing or that is a government that is backed by structures that are seen as, as oppressive. So I think when a country is sort of left to develop um, on its own, um, the situation for women can improve in a much more meaningful way. Mm. Um, we have a young woman here.
0: Um, You mentioned earlier that we're not having enough of a conversation around gender equality and gender justice. And I was wondering if you could expand on the two terminologies and and what you meant by that further.
1: Um, Thank you. Uh, So gender equality um, is is something that I think is, is at the heart of many UN-led and Women, Peace, and Security-led, kind of enshrined in the heart of Resolution 1325 and is at the core of a lot of programming and policy initiatives um, and certainly, you know, at the forefront of countries that now actively have feminist foreign policies. I think gender equality um, associates or or promotes a kind of full equality in a kind of uh, liberal Manner in which um, women seek to have equal access to workforce participation um, and, and security and political inclusion, I think the, the notion of gender justice sort of comes in um, from, from a different vantage point, and I think it reflects the attitudes and beliefs of some women and in some societies who don 't want or necessarily seek full blown equality, but seek justice within a still conservative and potentially patriarchal system, but within a sort of framework of some citizenship and rights. And and I'll give an example of that. Um, You know, being able to access courts to to sue for alimony or to to sue for divorce rights and and custody. Um, These are things that, uh, from a gender justice point of view, um, can very much happen within you know, I've worked recently on Somalia um, within an Islamic court system framework. Mm. Um, so sort of full-scale equality versus justice, I think connotes, you know, what is the approach we're going to bring in? Are we going to start with um, a notion that these societies that are riven by conflict uh, will be improved or will be more peaceful if they are, they look more like us, mm. less patriarchal uh, and more liberal, Whereas gender justice kind of, I think, comes in from a different perspective and doesn't presume that the roots of those conflicts lie in uh, their patriarchal norms, but that there is ways to improve the situation for women, uh, but within the norms and the context of that society.
0: Um, I I mean, I want to ask a follow-up question there because we're often told, feminists, um, you know, in this country are often told by particularly conservative commentators that we're too wrapped up with, um, you know, small, um, you know, rich people problems, basically, or middle-class problems, like whether or not we should wear lipstick or whether or not it's OK to have plastic surgery. And really what we should be focusing on is, um, you know, the real repression of women that's happening in places like, um, you know, some Muslim societies around the world. I mean, do you have a counter to that? Is that is that is that true? Um, you know, is there more that Western liberal feminists could be doing to help um, women who are oppressed in these very patriarchal societies?
1: um could they do more? I mean, I think that... I, I think it's, it's tricky when there is an idea that we can somehow help women in those societies distinctly from men. Um, I think if the situation um, for for both genders is improved, it gives a more level and safe playing field for women in those societies to kind of have those battles on their own. Mm. Um, I'll give an example again. You know, I'll talk about Iran, where I come from. I think very often uh, Western feminists are very supportive and direct activism and support for Iranian women, when they have anti-hijab demonstrations, when they want to uh, protest mandatory covering, and that is always celebrated, and it will be on the cover of a magazine, and you know prominent women will will tweet it. Um, but what about the situation of women? and men in Iran who are suffering under terrible economic sanctions, who are having to kind of drop their activism around the environment or sexual harassment on public transportation because these sanctions that are so crushing mean that they have to have three jobs to be able to support the family. Mm. Um, So I think uh, sort of going in as a starting point or or from afar and sort of supporting movements uh, for women that seem to reflect where we think from the outside those women should be, is is not the sort of uh, the most, I think, powerful way of of ensuring that they have the kind of basic economic survival, access to livelihoods, and security that will then enable them to choose the priorities of their activism, which will always be varied. There will be generational differences. Should we work on the hijab first? Should we work on child custody and divorce rights? You know, should we work on um, you know different different kind of consciousness raging among rural women and persuade them to join us and that these things matter to them? And um, so I think sort of coming in um, or, or looking from the outside and supporting or celebrating kind of single-issue movements that resonate with kind of our worries of, of or concerns, or, or wishes for that society um, is, is somewhat narrow.
0: Mm. Except perhaps in the case of the hijab, which you say, um, you know, women, Muslim women in Western societies are often bashed up one way or the other, often at the highest levels of government, um, for taking the veil, um, and that's something perhaps where we can help or defend those rights to do that.
1: Absolutely, in our, yes, in, in Western societies and, and ensure that, yeah, that women are sort of seen as having the freedom to choose that as much mm. as they have the freedom um, not to choose that.
0: Mm. Um, we're almost out of time. I just want to ask one of the, uh, the questions. Oh, actually, let's take the last question from this um, lovely audience member over here. Thank you. Um, as women, we play such a key role, I guess, in raising the next generation and also in instilling faith in the next generation. And um, and I, I'm just wondering if you can share about your view on how religion can play an important role as we raise the next generation to, I guess, embrace uh, our role as women and as sisterhood that goes beyond our religion and even possibly uses our faith to, you know, to connect the world. Like, I was very encouraged to read about Abu Dhabi, for example, bringing the Abrahamic House of Faith that they're building, where they're building three worships and it's like, Jewish... Christian and Islamic, you know, in one side, so that we can embrace each other. What do you think is the the, the role of us women
1: to bring this global sisterhood alive? Um, wow, just, just
0: small question to end on. That. Um,
1: we, we can we can end on 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 how we can use faith to um, improve the world. No, it's 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 wonderful, um, and I think that it's something that we don't really talk about very much at all, the role of faith in activism mm-hmm. and the f- role of faith um, in, in connecting women, um, I think there is real fertile ground there um, because there are many ways in which I think religious women of all backgrounds feel a bit left out and that mm-hmm. there's not a lot of space for them in politics, that there's not a lot of space for them um, in, in, in a cultural or social space where religion is seen as, is seen as backwards-looking and atavistic and incompatible with progressive values for women. Um, And there's really encouraging work, you know, in the UK where I come from between Jewish women and Muslim women who are sort of working together to support each other in in kind of taking forward their faith communities, whether it's um, ensuring that, you know, Jewish divorce and Muslim divorce is there's support for those women who choose to kind of marry or divorce within their home communities. Or simply, you know, protecting faith schools from uh, a social climate and a sometimes government climate that frowns on them Mm -hmm. because religion or conservative religion is seen, um, is is just seen as kind of irrelevant or or behind. And that there's, I think, very little respect for those values. Um, So I think supporting each other, especially across religions where, you know, sometimes like a faith school will be scrutinized simply because it's an Islamic faith school, whereas a Jewish faith school will not. And communities coming together to protect each other and to have some sort of solidarity in being seen as equally sort of adept and able to carry forward progressive ideas, but within their kind of respective phrase traditions. Mm-hmm. So I think women are very much actively doing that and there is a lot of space for that.
0: Thank you for the question. Um, And on that note, I mean, I think we'd love to um, talk on and on and on. I certainly would. But we do... We have run out of time, and they probably need the drama theatre for something else now. Um, So I just want to thank you so warmly, Azadeh. That was just absolutely fascinating. It is a wonderful book. Anyone who hasn't um, bought it or read it in the audience, I really strongly urge you to... In my mind, it's re- I haven't read anything like it, and I haven't seen such a deep uh, such a deep immersion in the stories of these women before, so I thank you very much and I thank our wonderful thank audience. Thank
1: you. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening. And please rate and review ideas at the House in your favorite podcast app. You can also listen to more Sydney Opera House podcasts at sydneyoperahouse.com slash podcasts